um, to our series, and I'm just going to briefly, I know he kind of gave a little bit of an overview for you guys, but I want to rehash a little bit because the, the more that we talk about it, the more that we remember some of these things. Um, but I'm really excited to be actually starting it this week. It's going to be going every week. We're going to come at these doctrines. I know it's, it's going to be a lot. Uh, it's going to be pretty rapid fire. Um, if you can, like, sword drill the Bible verses, you might have to do that. You know, do you guys remember doing that? Did you ever do sword drills? Spines down, you flip, see who could get there the fastest. So it's going to be a little quick with the Bible verses, but I'll try and slow down so that you guys have a chance to go there. If you want to underline anything or write anything in your Bibles, I encourage that, uh, but that's up to you. It's your Bible. Do with it what you will. Um, but uh, so our goal this summer is essentially to review uh, these doctrines, to go over these things um, that we can call them doctrines. We can call it theology, essentials of the faith or building blocks, whatever you want to call it. These are the things that we really need to know uh, to grasp God's word, to have a full picture of God's word. And there are essentially um, eight doctrines. There are essentially eight things that we um, are going to cover, uh, we're going to try to cover in, you know, roughly 30 minutes a week. So we're, we're going to be leaving a lot out. Um, we'll probably go a little bit fast through this material. So like Paul said, if you have questions um, or you want to talk about stuff afterwards, we're I'm more than happy to do that um, and to kind of go into things a little bit more deeply, recommend sources, because there's a lot of stuff, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff I haven't read and researched, uh, just because, you know, when you're studying something, you tend to study the things that you're drawn to, and the things I'm drawn to might be different than the things you're drawn to, so that's okay. That's how we, that's how we help each other learn and get better. So um, this week, we're going to be tackling the Bible. In future weeks, we'll tackle um, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, the church, man, sin, salvation, um, spiritual realm, and the end, things that we don't know as much about. So some of these things you've probably heard a lot of, um, and I'll, some of this may be review for you guys. Some of it might be totally new, um, but all we're trying to do is lay the foundation. Uh, we're not trying to get to the end to where we can have these deep debates over the finest points of theology. Um, all we're trying to do is put a good groundwork um, I kind of want you guys to think about this as, as like blueprints, um, that these are, uh, it, it's not really the building. I'm not helping you to necessarily build it on, like on your own tonight. I'm not giving you all the things to build it for you. I'm just giving you the tools. We're laying this out. Um, it's not the building itself that we're learning here. That comes from scripture. Um, it's just a tool to help us know where to put things. Uh, we're able to, to take all this stuff that we're seeing in scripture, format it. Um, find out, okay, so what does this verse have to do with my life today? Uh, because it's really helpful uh, to be able to um, take something in Scripture and apply it to your life because it did happen in a certain context, but it's also efficient for your life right now. And so we want to be able to do that. Um, and so tonight, like I said, we're going to be focusing on the Bible. And so um, during this introduction that I gave a few weeks ago, I mentioned consistently that Christians, we have to put our foundation in God's word. Remember, we went to Psalm 1, and we saw that the man who is rooted in the word of God um, is able to stand tall. We're able to be, um, to stand against the winds of, uh, the changing winds of our culture and times, um, and they're changing really fast right now. So we have to be planted in the word of God um, so that we're able to, to stand um, in this world. And I gave two presuppositions that I have personally, but I think that they're general presuppositions. Um, it's been a couple of weeks. 
uh, do you guys, can you remember either of the presuppositions or any presupposition that a Christian might hold to? Bruce. Yep, yep. The Bible is God's word. And there was one other one. These are, these are pretty normative for all Christians. Sandrine. That's part of it, yes. The Trinity, but it's, it's God. We serve one God who's triune, almighty. He's the creator. So we have an almighty God, uh, and it says in Deuteronomy 6.4, I don't think I had this on originally, but it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's one God, but he exists in three parts, the Father, Son, and Spirit. We're going to talk about that some more uh, in future weeks. Um, but also then um, we have the Bible is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. That means that it's unable to, to have any errors, but it's also constantly true. It's never going to be false. Um, and so that's kind of what we're looking at today. We're going to spend our time uh, considering uh, what, is the, what is the Bible and, and why should we trust it. And then as a reminder, we looked at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You guys are familiar with this, but I'm going to drill this one into you because it's really important. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, if we truly believe this, if we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God, that means that we're going to believe all the parts of scripture, even the things that seem phenomenal, that seem like they couldn't have happened. Creation, splitting the Red Sea, the sun standing in the sky, miracles, walking on water, feeding, feeding masses of amount, massive amounts of people with just a little bit of food. They're more than just stories. These are really true histories. This happened. That's what we believe. If we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God, that means all of these things that we see in the Old Testament that we can't quite wrap our ma minds around. We can't see that stuff. There's one concept in Scripture that if it were to be false, we would more or less throw, throw away the whole system. What's that one thing? That one doctrine, one truth. Brennan. That's right, the resurrection. That's our one truth. Now, we're going to turn, okay? I'm going to give you guys some time to turn. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection is one of, is the most important doctrine that we find in Scripture. Because the Apostle Paul tells us that if it's not true, we basically have nothing. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, those who are dead, 
in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, we are the most to be pitied. We're wasting our lives if there's no resurrection. So we have to have the resurrection to have hope, to continue pursuing this life. Because we didn't see the resurrection, and we can't witness any legitimate, bona fide resurrections here and now. We don't see that today, like, like we did with Christ, who was dead three days and then came back to life. He was fully, utterly dead. Because we can't see that, but if the Bible is right and Jesus rose from the dead and everything about it, uh, everything that the Bible says about him is true, then Jesus is God. He's the God in heaven. Everything that he said about himself, all the claims he made are true. So let me sum it up. If we believe the Bible because Jesus rose from the dead, so if the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead and we can't see it, we have to believe the Bible's testimony. And if the Bible is right about Jesus and all the things that he said about the Bible being true is true, then we believe Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, it's kind of confusing, but just pay attention to what's on the screen. Then, we also believe Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible said so. So we believe the Bible because Jesus rose from the dead. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then the Bible is wrong. But then... We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so. So you see what we're getting ourselves into. Circular argument, circular reasoning. So uh, there's actually a funny story that I just read recently um, of a teacher who asked uh, their class uh, why the world doesn't just fall out of the sky. Um, and one of the boys in the classroom uh, spoke up and he said, uh, because it's sitting on a turtle's back. The teacher, intrigued, said, well, why doesn't the turtle fall? The boy persisted and he said, because it's standing on another turtle's back. So then the teacher asked again, well, why doesn't that turtle fall? Well, said the boy thoughtfully, obviously, because it's turtles all the way down. It's turtles. All, there's nothing holding the sky, the, the world in the sky other than turtles. Why? Because there are turtles. Like it's, it's just a, it's a circular argument constantly. So whether it's me or you or Pastor Davey or J.D. Greer or Bart Ehrman, Richard Dawkins, or an unbelieving teacher or friend, we all have some sort of authority where it's turtles all the way down. There's some authority that is self-attesting. And for us, it's the Bible. For others, it might be reason or science, logic, tradition. There's always going to be presupposed knowledge. We're always assuming something of the world, whether we trust our own minds and our own reason or we trust Scripture. But that doesn't mean that we should totally give up because we can't really know anything. We use the mental faculties that God has given to us to interpret the world, and with a rational mind and logical thinking, we approach Scripture because we believe it because Jesus raised himself from the dead. So with that said, the grand question before us tonight is, why should we trust the Bible? What makes the Bible different than any other 
ancient text or historical book? What makes it different from the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Iliad and the Odyssey? Or different from other religious texts like the Quran or the Book of Mormon? Or even historical books like Josephus's Jewish Antiquities or my current audio biography that I'm listening to because I don't, I don't read books. I listen to books if I can. Um, Alexander Hamilton. It's 36 hours long. It's taken me months to listen to that. Why is the Bible different from this book that this man spent years studying, researching? Or another one of my favorite books, Endurance, the story of Ernest Shackleton. If you haven't heard of Ernest Shackleton, look it up. It's pretty awesome. He, tra he traversed uh, the terrain of Antarctica, essentially trying to cross Antarctica through and get to the, uh, the South Pole. Anyway, you can look that up later. I just told you, so. So what makes, the what makes the Bible different from them? As Christians, we believe that the Bible is unique, um, but what makes it that way? Uh, one of the reasons uh, that we often get uh, is that it's, uh, it's a manual for living. It's a library of information. It literally has everything in it. There's narrative, poetry, history, apocalypse. There's love stories. There's lust, murder, intrigue. Multiple love triangles, not just one, multiple love triangles. There's revenge, and there's scores, musical scores like Hans Zimmer if we only had the music. And then there's a, a few zombies, for crying out loud. There are people walking out of graves. Lazarus literally still wrapped in his, in his burial clothes. What more do people want? It's literally every movie genre that you could want. You just have to read it. But does the fact that the Bible has a variety of subjects and genres make it so special? No, we can read any number of books. Harry Potter is really exciting. I like to re read, listen to Harry Potter. I don't read, I listen. I'm making that clear to you guys. <laughs> no, just the fact that it's interesting doesn't make the Bible special. It's the author. We can trust the author. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this is a really important concept. We're going to go back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out. It's inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The word that's translated breathed out or inspired does a pretty good job of giving us the literal idea of that word that Paul's trying to use. It's only used one time in the New Testament, but Paul is trying to get us to identify Scripture as being totally special, totally different from any other writing. It's totally other. There's nothing else like Scripture. And it comes right here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We know that we can trust the author because all over, Scripture attribute, attributes authorship to God. He's sovereign, trustworthy, and true. And so next, and what we're going to spend our most time thinking about tonight is we can trust the process of transmission. This is one of the most dubious uh, areas, one of the most doubtful things that we can discuss in the area of bibliology. Um, because in the eyes of most unbelievers and possibly some believers where it's the most difficult to grasp and explain to someone else is how did the Bible get from the writers to the early church and the church fathers then to the reformers and now to us. 
how did we end up with the Bible that we hold today? What I've got sitting on my table, what we've got on our phones and computers and tablets. How did we get here? The Bible claims to have been written by 40 men over a period of 1,500 years. It contains 66 books of a variety of genres, and it claims to be free from error. And so many people, they have trouble reconciling this concept that it could remain true over that many years and having passed through that many hands. Thankfully, we can trust the divine author. Because again, what, what are we presupposing? That there is a true God who is sovereign, and he is holy. He is unable to make a mistake. And because of his involvement, we know that we can trust this process. What we've been given in the scriptures, um, we know that even when God gave it to the men originally, we still have the same thing today. We can be confident of that. And so as I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of people um, view the preservation of the Bible as something that's probably unlikely to have happened. Some people call it a, a game of telephone. You know, you've got, you whisper something in your friend's ear and it goes around the circle and by the end it's funny. They think that what we ended up with today is totally different from what was given to Moses. 1,500, or yeah, I guess, how many years is this? 6,000, 4,000? I don't know. A long time ago, what was given to Moses, I don't do math. What was given to Moses, uh, that's one of the other things I don't do. I don't read and I don't do math, so... Doing really well in life. Um, seriously, the last math class I took was like eight years ago. So I, I literally have to have my phone to do math. Anyway. I don't <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what you do. Go to seminary. Although they force us to read a lot. So I just get as many audiobooks as I can. It's an exercise for me. All right. Where was I? Very distracted. So what <laughs> math. I don't need to go back there. I left that in senior, like my senior year of high school. I left math where it should die in my life. <sighs> okay, what am I trying to say? <laughs> all right, here we go. <laughs> God is overseeing all of, all of the, the process of scripture. What's the theological word? That's what I was trying to get. What's the theological word that people use? You've probably heard it. Anybody have any idea? Inerrancy is good, but that's not what I'm looking for. Infallible, also good. Not what I'm looking for. Dark <laughs> What's the, the I, sh I should probably repeat the question better. I'll just read it from my notes. What is the theological word that people use to describe God's involvement in the process and production of scripture? What's that word? Good, but no. You guys are hitting all the I words. This is really good. It starts with an S. S-U-P-E-R-V-A-L-A-S. It's not that one. Super, anybody? No? Superintended. Okay. That was a bad one. I won't ask, I won't ask that question again. It's superintended. That's a, that's a word I had to learn reading a book. That was, I literally read a book that time. I didn't listen to it. All these, all, uh, all that superintended means is that God is responsible for all of the production. God put it all together. He oversaw everything that came together. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no, pro no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
as they were carried along. That's the idea of superintending. I heard someone once describe the, the phenomenon of superintention as a toy boat being put into a creek. The toy boat, um, it's a toy. It doesn't have any way to move itself along, but when you put it in the creek, it flows down. It's, got its, it's its own unique entity, and it has its own properties and characteristics, but the creek is what's moving the boat. The creek gives the boat its power. On its own, the boat has no power. In this way, the human words that we use don't have any inherent power unless it is coming from God. And so when those men wrote, their, wrote the words down on the page, how they did in their own unique style, when they did that, because God was behind them and he was overseeing all that process, that's what gave it power. That's what people recognized. They saw the power of God in it. So Jesus reminded the disciples that when he left, um, as they would be uh, recounting these stories, they would receive a supernatural power and be able to remember and accurately tell his story because he knew that it would go through such rigorous testing. In John 14, 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So even though God used fallible men to write down his word, he empowered them to do it in such a way that they would be free from error and free from sinful influence, sinful humanity. In this way, it's a unique and perfect book. People might be able to wrap their heads around the fact that God used those men at one time to write it down, but the pages of Moses and Paul and John have all been lost to history. We don't have their exact manuscripts. When people sit down before those old uh, pieces of paper that are all tattered and they have crazy writing on it, they're not sitting down to Moses' actual piece of paper that he used. They're not sitting down to Paul's paper that he used. So since they're lost to history, how can we really trust that it hasn't been corrupted over time? Since the books of the New Testament were written in the middle of the second century, probably 50 to 100 years after uh, the time of Christ, a lot of people really, they, they feel like they can't trust that. Uh, but even though we don't have the original copies of what was written down, we have something like 5,400 individual manuscripts or fragments of the, uh, the original language, the original Greek. I believe that this is all just for the New Testament. 5,400 manuscripts, and it be begins roughly 80 to 100 years after the time of Christ, after he rose from the dead. That's a, that seems like a lot to us, but people still want to pick at that. They want to say 80 to, 80 to 100 years, that's so long. People would have long forgotten all that information, and if we don't have the original writing, then we don't know that this that's written 80 to 100 years after is really true. But let's compare it to some other works of antiquity. You've probably seen things like that, uh, this before. Consider Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. We only have nine or ten readable copies. Nine or ten. Compared to 5,400, that doesn't seem like that much, but I'm not good at math. Um, and the earliest date that we have is 900 years later than when it was originally written. Another, Tacitus's it's a hard name to say. Histories and Annals, which was written in the first century, only has two surviving manuscripts that were written 800 and 1,000 years after writing. 
but nobody questions the writing of Tacitus or Julius Caesar. Why does the Bible get such rigorous testing? Why do people attack the Bible so much? It's because it's claiming to be something that, that no other writing is claimed to be. But since we have 5,400 surviving manuscripts copied by fallible men, there are bound to be errors and, and problems with the, the copying. But these copy errors don't necessarily need to give us cause to worry. Um, generally, though, I, I've seen somewhere in the neighborhood of 400,000 errors, or variants, not errors, variants. The texts vary by a lot. Um, but generally, when somebody gives a number like that, they're counting each variant in every manuscript. So if somebody changed the wording a little bit at one time and then 50 people followed them, that's 51 manuscripts, not just one. Even though one guy changed it and 50 people followed, that's 51. So they're inflating the numbers a little bit as they, as they count it. And when one manuscript says one thing and 10 others say something else, even though there's really only two text traditions, they count it as 11. So they're really bolstering these numbers. They're trying to make it seem big, uh, a bigger deal than it really is. And really, all of those variants, those things that we see that are different, these numbers, they're not on things that really matter. It's not uh, addressing anything that's doctrinally important. And the two most important ones that you probably see in your own Bibles, um, John 8 and Mark 16, where they, in my Bible, it has two double brackets. And it says, most manuscripts don't include this. Those are the two biggest, most significant um, variants. Even those don't contain any doctrinal teaching that's important, that's questioned. Nothing is questioned there. And everything that's there, that's true, that's found is found elsewhere in Scripture. So there's a lot of other, um, uh, there's a lot of variants, they say, but they really don't affect anything that we believe. But based on this wealth of manuscripts, we can see God's sovereignty in protecting his precious word. He's protected it throughout years of critics, years of people attacking scripture. And we can be confident in that scripture that we have. So next, I want to highlight a pretty foundational question. I skipped to the slide a little early, but are these really the 66 books that we have in this Bible right here? Are these 66 books the only inspired books, or could there be more? Are there other books that are inspired that we don't have, or are there books in here that really aren't inspired and they shouldn't be here? Because we see the Roman Catholic Church, they add books um, to the Bible. They, they see other books that are included. The Apocrypha, if, if you've heard of that. Roman, the Roman Catholic Church views that on the same level as Scripture. A lot of you guys have been to Utah. The Book of Mormon is viewed on the same plane as Scripture. It's in, they see it as inspired. Um, now, on the other side, uh, the Jews don't see the New Testament as inspired. They only see the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as inspired. So how can we be sure that this is really the Bible and that there's not some other tradition that we should should be holding to excuse me the first uh, the first thing that we're going to look at is the old testament fairly straightforward look at deuteronomy 13 with me pretty straightforward uh, god makes it very plain um, deuteronomy 13 <coughs> it says that um, well hold on before i get before i get there i'm gonna let you guys turn um, it, the Jews, if the Jews held a man to be a prophet of God, they accepted his writings 
as inspired of God. And Deuteronomy 13 gives us the qualifications of such a man. Um, It says, uh, starting in verse 1, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, catch this, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It was a test. So if the prophets came and they claimed to be of God, they would do a miracle. If the miracle came true and then they spoke something, they were to hold that as scripture. But then they were also to test that. The people were to test what the prophets, they weren't supposed to take everything wholesale. They had to test it against the, the words of the rest of scripture, the Torah. If, if one of the prophets came toward the end of Israel and was saying, you guys need to repent, they had to look at Torah and they had to say, oh yeah, we do have to repent or God's going to judge us. But if that prophet came and, the, and he did a miracle and it came true, and then he told them to go after other gods, they were to put that prophet to death. God took it very seriously. And the people of Israel took it very seriously when someone claimed to be a prophet. And, they, and as they continued to copy their scriptures, they were very meticulous in how they did it. A scribe spent all of his day copying the scriptures, and if he messed it up, he had to throw it away. It was no good. They didn't have erasers. They couldn't delete it on our keyboard. I do that constantly. I mistype things. Could have something to do with the fact that I only have three fingers on one hand, but it's what I got, so I, I just work with it. It's more like chicken pecking. But they couldn't do that, so they had to throw it away. They took their jobs very seriously. But when it came to the New Testament, it wasn't quite as simple. But it was just as true. The New Testament, uh, for a letter or a book to be considered scripture, it had to be written by or overseen by one of the, the apostles. The early church knew who the apostles were. Um, but a lot of them, because they didn't necessarily, they hadn't seen the apostle, um, or maybe they hadn't even interacted with them, people would send letters and they would claim to be of apostolic authority. Um, so the church had to exercise the same type of discernment in the New Testament as in the Old Testament. They had to compare it with the rest of Scripture, which what they had at the time was the Old Testament. Or maybe they had one of the Gospels or multiple Gospels that they could compare that truth to. And then the early church was responsible for collecting the inspired um, circular books, uh, which the Old Testament was a little different than the New Testament because Israel was in one place for most of its time. It was in one spot. So when they wrote the law, they could really easily disseminate it, and everybody was on the same page. But in the New Testament, it was very scattered. Um, And so they had to send letters, and they kept passing these letters around, and that's why there's 5,400 variants, because there were lots of people copying it down. When they got it, they would write it down as fast as they could and as best as they could so that they had it, and then they could send it on to somebody else. They took the scriptures very seriously. They didn't take it for granted. But they did not, however, decide which books were scriptural or inspired or inerrant. They didn't decide it. They only recognized what was inherent to those texts. They weren't going through and they flip a coin and say, uh, which one is going to be the inspired one? Do we take Paul's writing or do we take the, I can't even think, it's, it's gone now. This is what I get for going off book, right? 
goes on. Forget it. Do we take Paul's writing or do we take somebody else's? No, that's not what they were doing. They were just recognizing what was inherent to it. These, what we have is the word of God. These things that we read come from God. And so once a book was held to be scriptural, the same care that was taken in the Old Testament to copy it down was taken in the New Testament because all of the early church was essentially Jewish, or most of it for the greater part of its, uh, the early time was Jewish. They took their Jewish history and they took that same diligence with how they copied the Old Testament to how they copied the New Testament. So within a matter of 200 years or so, give or take, uh, after Christ, the entirety of the Bible that we have today, more or less, these 66 books were seen as genuine words of God. They had already decided that these 66 books were the ones that best represented Scripture. Again, I, I said decided. They didn't choose. They recognized. They recognized these ones as Scripture. So we can be confident that God has overseen that. He has superintended. He's gone, gone before and he's placed in the words of the prophets, in the words of the apostles, what they should say. And then he's gone through these, uh, the churches and preserved the books that he wanted to be preserved. Gospel of Thomas. Isn't that the worst? That's what I was trying to think of. God, hate that. It comes to you at the random, most random times. So the last thing that I want to consider is the question of translation. How can we really trust the translations that we have? And all this says is translation, transliterated from English words into Greek. So that's what those Greek letters sound like, translation, roughly. Yeah, anyway. If you've ever taken a foreign language, I took four years of Spanish in high school. I love, I love language. It's so much fun to learn um, other cultures because you don't just learn a language, you learn a culture. If you've ever taken a language, you know that. There's no direct, or not a direct translation for something you want to say. There's specific idioms or, or figures of speech that they have in their language that we don't have in our language. It doesn't come out the same if you translate it. Literally, it sounds weird. Every translation is interpreting something. There's interpretation that goes into the, the concept of translating any language, not just for the Bible, Spanish to English, English to Albanian. There's always some sort of er, uh, interpretation that has to go into it. So the question is, is an accurate, readable literal translation possible it's a lot we're saying it has to be accurate to what they would have understood the meaning of the text to be it has to be readable don't want to stumble around over over words and try and fit them together as we read it we want to be able to fluently read it in our own language and literal true to what is being said in the text in the old testament sometimes uh, in the King James or New King James, you'll see his nose was hot. Anybody know what that means? His nose was hot? If you have studied Hebrew, I don't want your answer. I want someone who doesn't. His nose was hot. Anybody? I only know it because I studied Hebrew. <laughs> it's cheating. Torrance. Good answer, but no. They did not eat something spicy. They might have. It's probably spicier than what I can handle, but he was not drunk. But that's a also a good answer. Embarrassed? No, but good, good answer. What? I heard. I think I heard it over here. What was it? Yes, angry. His nose was hot. 
is a figure of speech. If we were to say it here, you guys came up with so many different interpretations for that. If I say my nose is hot, people are going to be like, go outside. It's colder. But it's not. It's still hot. Stinking North Carolina. So hot here. From the <laughs> California is so much better. We don't need to get into that, Torrin. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. He is. You're right. Temperatures are nice. No, we're not going to get into it. We're not getting into California. Leave that for after. You can email me about it, Torrin, okay? Right there. <laughs> I won't respond. I'm going to leave you on red for that one. All right, where was I? So, thankfully, uh, we live in a time and a location. The developed English world has so many English translations. We're so blessed to be where we are. But there's a lot of languages that they only have one translation, and it might not be that good because they, they weren't able to put together an accurate, readable, literal translation. Whoever put it together, maybe they didn't have as much knowledge in the original languages. But where, excuse me, where we sit today, we, are, we can be thankful that there have been scholars who have devoted their lives, their time, their minds, to studying the original text of Scripture, the original languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. They've spent time trying to figure out those languages and get into the mind of an original reader so that they know, without a doubt, this is how they would have understood this. And then they can give to us accurate translations that we can rely on. We can depend on, the, on these. Because, again, we're staking our lives on what's in this book. Because if the resurrection is not true, if this Bible is not true and the resurrection is not true, then we are the most to be pitied. But thankfully, we can faithfully and literally communicate the Bible text in our own language. There are so many Bible translations in English that we can argue with each other about which one's the best. There's the NASB, the ESV, the CSV, the KJV, the New King James, the NIV. The list goes on, on and on. Pull out the Bible app and you can like do three swipes before you get to the bottom of the English Bible version. But it's not just guys sitting in a dark room flippantly deciding what words they want to mean what things. This is groups of men, committees, men and women, committees that are coming together um, with their expertise and they're taking the Bible from the original and putting it in a language that we can understand. And there are other people who devote their lives to other languages. And then they take the expertise that they have in Greek and Hebrew and they put it into those languages so that those people can have accurate translations. We don't have to take the Bible and change it so that it fits our culture. The Bible is sufficient and has power to change our culture to fit what the, the words of Scripture say. So we've seen throughout this whole process of receiving the transmission of Scripture to organizing it, to then translating it into English, we've seen throughout this whole process, God is sovereign over all of it. Every aspect, at every stage, God has been there. In the background, organizing, orchestrating. We believe that this book is re reliable. It's sufficient. Because we can trust the author. 
God superintended. He went behind the scenes and he made sure that all of the, the writings from the Old Testament and the New Testament remained intact so that today we can trust in what we receive, what we have. Ultimately, we're trusting the Bible because we trust its source. The source of Scripture is God. We can trust that source. We can choose to have faith in the God who superintended this Scripture and has kept it over thousands of years of critiques and challenges and attempts to destroy the Bible and Christians. We can trust that God we can have, choose to have faith in him, or we can choose to have faith in the wisdom and knowledge of men. Because ultimately, those are your two sources. All you have, you have God, you can choose to trust him, or you have man, and you can choose to trust man. We choose. But either way, turtles all the way down got to have faith. We put our faith in something, whether God or man. All right, so that's, that's what I have for today. Um, it was a lot, um, and I didn't really give you guys time to, to go back and forth. Um, does anybody, what time, what time do we have? It's late, so maybe we're not going to take any thoughts or questions. If you want to talk about it, come up here. I can talk to you. Um, we can talk as late as Michael will let us stay. Um, otherwise, uh, head on Head on downstairs. Micah is our security man. I know he's watching the clock for me. Um, otherwise, we've got games and stuff downstairs. Um, we've got snacks in the back, coffee, um, water downstairs, drinks. Okay. Um, I'm going to pray, close us, and then we'll, we'll go on with the rest of our night. God, we thank you so much for your sovereignty. In placing us in the time that we are here today, where we can have so much confidence in your word that we don't have to worry about the fact that there are challenges against scripture. We can trust it. We know that you are, uh, you've given men uh, to, to write the scripture and then you've used men to organize the scripture and you've used men to translate the scripture. And now today you've given it to us as a gift. Now we must be faithful to use it properly. Help us now as we continue to study these things that are found in your word over these next few weeks. And as we begin to incorporate these things into our lives, Lord, that you would continue to use the truths of your word to change us, to change cultures, and to change this world. God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We pray it all in your name. Amen.